Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. There is a story for everyone here because every story matters. Welcome everyone to the Storybox. This is the place to be if you are a lover of stories, learning new and interesting things, and if you want to grow abundantly. My name is Jay Phantom, and I believe it's my purpose to help you realize your worth and become the greatest and best version of you possible. I am grateful that you're here today. Now let's journey into the Storybox together and hear more about whose story will be unboxed today. I want this to work. This is a phrase that I believe many of us have either said out loud or said to ourselves when we are dealing with relationships as a whole, especially the ones that are going into the romantic kind of relationships. They definitely want and their intentions going in are that they want it to work out, that they want it to be worthwhile and they're not wasting their time. My guest today is a therapist and she's a damn well good one, actually. Her name is Elizabeth Earnshaw. Now, for those of you that don't know who she is, Elizabeth is the founder of A Better Life Therapy and she's an influential Instagram therapist behind at Liz Listens. You can go and check her out if you like. She holds a master's degree in marriage and family therapy. She's a licensed marriage and family therapist and is a certified John and Julie Gottman, uh, a Gottman Method couples therapist as well. Elizabeth also trains and supervises new therapists seeking their licenses in the counseling field. She has a brand new book out, which you can go and get a copy of right now, which is called the same phrase that I mentioned earlier, I want this to work. It's an inclusive guide to navigating the most difficult relationship issues we face in the modern age. We are living in a contemporary, cultural, culturally exclusive actually uh, world right now. And this book is an easy to digest book about relationships about the modern age, really. How do we navigate relationships as a whole in this modern age? We have a lot of things that are attempting to destroy our relationships. Today's generation is changing the rules about commitment to relationships and looking to create more meaningful relationships within their lives too. We are more selective before we're getting married We have more diverse families and family structures around the world. I don't know if you guys know, but they've seen uh, an 18% drop in divorce rates 
In this new environment, what couples need more than ever are effective, flexible tools to communicate, navigate hard times, and create deeper connections with their partners. And this is something that Liz and I talk about in quite extent on the show today. And this is one of the things that I was interested in uh, with unboxing Liz's story and and her wisdom and advice on what can we do about the post or the modern age that we are currently living in, in terms of having a healthy view of relationships. So I know you guys are going to really, really enjoy this conversation. I myself had an absolute blast speaking with Liz. I don't really get to speak to many people about relationships as a whole, especially from a therapist standpoint uh, too. So this was a very special conversation for me. So if you do get something from it, please share it around to all your friends and your family. Let everyone know about this one. Don't forget before you leave to subscribe and leave a rating and review over an Apple podcast as well. Do appreciate each and every one of you that continue to come back and support the show. You guys are amazing and I hope that you guys are keeping well and staying safe out there in the current age that we are living in too. All right, my friends, you know what time it is. It is time to journey with me into this story box as we listen to the incredible wisdom, the advice and the story of none other than therapist herself, Elizabeth Earnshaw. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to chat with you. I'm excited to actually have you here on the show. I don't really get to talk about relationships too much on the story box, which whenever I get the opportunity to, I leap at it because I love it. I think it is a fascinating subject matter to talk about because everyone has relationships, whether it's within a marriage dynamic, friendship dynamic, work dynamic, you name it. So I am very curious, I guess you could say, to unbox more about it during our conversation today. But before we do that, I have to ask you a question that I love asking all my guests at the very start, which is, what does success look like for you? I think for me, success looks like feeling fulfilled. You know, I I don't have that creative or grandiose of an answer other than when you feel content, I think that means that you've met some form of success. Mm. What does it mean or what does contentment really look like for you? What does it surround? Yeah. You know, it's something that I personally struggle with because I'm always like wanting the next thing and I'm into doing projects and like, you could contact me tomorrow and say, do you want to do this project together? And I'd be like, yeah, let's do it. (laughs) So I, I struggle with it, um, personally, but when I'm content, I know I'm content because I don't need anything else, you know, and I'm, you know, I feel like I've met family success in my own life where I'm like, I love my husband. I love my son. The way our family operates is great. I don't need to seek out anything else there. I feel good with it. It doesn't mean I don't work on it or invest in it, but there's just this sense of ease. And I think that that's, that's what I seek in my life is, you know, I'll feel like a successful, successful person. If I feel ease in different areas of my life. Do you find it difficult to get that sense of ease or try and achieve that uh, feeling of fulfillment in one's life and contentment? I think that people struggle to find that. Yeah. I think that sometimes we don't step back to think what is it that we're actually looking for when it comes to ease and 
the holes that we have within us or the emptiness, we're constantly trying to fill it with more and more and more shiny objects because they give us a dopamine hit. So we don't really find that ease or that fulfillment because we think it's something else out there that's Mm going to give it to us. And for myself, and I think for a lot of the people I work with, getting around that means actually slowing down and saying, well, what do I really want here? All of the stuff I'm doing, the the money I'm spending on things, the activities I'm doing, all the people I'm dating, like whatever it is, is that actually because it's getting me closer to feel a sense of ease? um, Or am I just feeling really good at the quickness of it or the pace of it? And in the long run, is it actually going to make me feel good? Mm. Is fulfillment necessary to have a healthy relationship with someone? That's such a good question. And I haven't ever talked about it in those terms, but yes, I think that what we seek is fulfillment, right? Mm -hmm. And so we're looking for that. And I think if we don't have it, then it's really good to build a healthy relationship. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes when people don't have it, what they do is they start looking everywhere else to get those dopamine hits, to get those easy wins, and they don't work towards fulfillment with each other. It's really hard because what comes first, the chicken or the egg, should we feel fulfilled and that's just it? Or do we need to work towards it? But I think it's a huge piece of having a healthy relationship. I think there is for me in particular, having gone through several relationships that I guess you could say weren't necessarily the healthiest, like in terms of the dating aspect, the other side of my relationships like work and family, all that sort of stuff, they were okay. It could be better, obviously, but Mm -hmm. for the dating relationship aspect, I think you're right. There was, for me, I was chasing that sense of fulfillment. Like I needed to find that level of contentment, so to speak, but I wasn't really finding it. So I felt like something was missing almost in within myself, within the actual relationship. But there's so many like areas that interests me more or less to actually have a healthy relationship, not just fulfillment, but like it kind of feels like fulfillment is like the ultimate goal, if that makes sense. That's why I looked at it. (laughs) Yeah. Um, When I was in those relationships. So Yeah. Uh, I guess my question is like looking at all those areas, if we were to start from the ground zero and say, okay, what are the basis that we need going into having with the dating aspect? What areas do we need to look at to build upon to make a healthy relationship going into dating? Yeah. So I like to tell people to look for three basic things and they're not very basic, I guess, if we break it down, but I tell people, you should definitely be looking number one for respect, you know, do they respect you and do you respect them? And people, when they're dating will sadly stay in relationships with a person for a while, even when they recognize there wasn't respect at the very start. Right. So Are they always showing up late? Do they say things that are rude to you? Are they disrespectful towards other people? And do you respect them, right? You know, I'll work with a lot of people that are like, you know, I like them. I'm going to keep dating them, but I'm kind of embarrassed because this is, they dress like this or they do this. And it's like, well, 
if you're not able to like respect who they are, then this isn't really a very good sign. So definitely look for a baseline of respect. The other thing that I suggest that people look at and pay attention to is reliability. So how reliable is this other person? Um, Reliable in terms of do they show up for you when they say they will, but also reliable on a larger scale. So are they fairly, fairly predictable in the way that they behave? You know, do they text you one week every single day and then ghost you for two weeks and then come back around and say, oh, sorry, I was so busy. I had so many conferences last week and I just didn't get around to texting you. Like, come on, we all live in the modern world. We all know it takes two seconds to text somebody you're interested in. That excuse doesn't fly anymore. Um, so are they reliable? And the way you know that someone is reliable is that you feel safe with them. You know, if you're dating and you're sitting on the couch thinking, I haven't heard from them today. I don't think that they like me. Oh my gosh, it's 9 PM. And they haven't said anything. Maybe I should send another text to see if, if they're still there or whatever. Like that's a sign that for some reason, this doesn't feel very reliable to you. And it's just something to pay attention to. And the final thing that I think is really important to pay attention to is responsiveness. So how responsive are they towards you um, in your needs? You know, like if you set a limit, are they able to non-defensively hear it out? It doesn't mean they have to agree with it. But if you say something like, hey, you know, you're super late today. I don't know what's going on, but I don't really like that. And are they able to then respond to that and say, you're totally right? that that wasn't right of me. I care about your time. Da, 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 da. Um, if you're hungry and you say, I need to eat right now, are they responsive and say, let's stop and get food? Or are they like, well, we're, we're going on a drive and we still have an hour and I'm not going to stop. Mm-hmm. Um, and then of course, are they responsive to your emotions and all of those types of important things? Um, so those are the three things that I tend to tell people to look for when they're, they're dating somebody. So basically saying, Oh, I was busy. I had a lot going on. Is no excuse for leaving someone on scene. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> there's obviously different levels, right? Like I'll be the first to admit that I left my best friend on scene yesterday. And after this call, I'm going to get back to her. But come on, when we're dating in the beginning, if we're really into someone, that person does not get left on scene. Yeah. People that get left on scene are, you know, our colleagues who we picked up the phone and we saw that they texted and we had to hop into a meeting. Our best friends who we are certain are around for us and we'll get back to them tomorrow once we have time. When you're dating someone and you're supposed to be wooing them and showing them your best self, if your best self is that you didn't even think of them while you were away on conferences the entire time, um, I don't know that that's a great sign. To me, leaving someone on scene is just not respectful as a whole. Like totally. even, even if like I'm interested in that person, I, like I'll never leave anyone on scene. I just don't feel right about it at all. Like even if I'm extremely busy, it might take me a little while to get back to them, but I won't open the message so they know that I've seen the message. I'll just, when I have the time, I'll go into the message and take the time to respond. Like, cause I believe that we can all carve out, even if it's just five or 10 minutes in our day to get back to someone. It makes them feel good, makes it, it shows respect as well. And it shows a level of commitment too, in my opinion. And I just don't, I just don't feel like it's nasty. <laughs> it I is. Yeah. It is. And, you know, 
especially if they keep writing you. You know, yeah. it's one thing if you accidentally opened a message while you were like mid meeting and it slipped your mind and it's been only a couple hours. But if they follow up again and they say, hey, I still haven't heard from you and you just ignore it. And then two weeks later, you come back around and say, oh, sorry, I was so busy. It, it sends a signal. And again, it depends on what type of relationship you're looking for there. But the very start of a relationship, we are so fueled with hormones yeah. that when we're really into somebody, we are remembering that they messaged us. You know, we are, we are thinking about that. You deserve to be dating someone who is just as riled up about you as you are about them. And so if you wouldn't leave them on scene, but they do that to you, already an unequitable relationship. It's not great. What are some things that we should look out for to actually distinguish between whether or not someone is in fact interested in us, like in terms of the social media world, I know it's a bit difficult to do that, but what are some things that we should look out for? Even if they say that they are somewhat interested in us and they still leave us on scene, is that a warning sign? Yeah. You know, I think that if that happened and you bring it up to them, look for their response. We're all different human beings. So I'm, I'm making this grand, I'm, I'm painting a big picture here and saying anybody who does that is not a good match. And that's not completely true, but are they able when you bring it up to be responsive? So it comes back to these three R's, you know, you feel disrespected, you bring it up and say, look, that's not cool with me. I messaged you three days ago when I'm dating somebody, I really expect that they communicate with me. And if they respond back with, you're being so dramatic, what's that all about? I don't owe you anything. This is another signal, right? That they're not able to respond to you and who you are and what you need. Now, if they write back and say, oh gosh, I'm so embarrassed. You know, I tend to be someone who's just honestly not super communicative. And I do think about you a lot and I'm going to try. Then that's great information because it means that they heard you out. Now you're going to have to continue to see if their actions follow what they said, but looking for how someone responds to your feedback is a huge piece of, you know, what you should be paying attention to when you're first getting to know somebody. Another thing that I tell people to pay attention to is actually less about the other person and more about you. So if you're dating someone and the entire time you are feeling uncertain, you're feeling bad about yourself. If you have highs and lows the entire day, I don't know if you've had experiences like this, but I can think back to when I was dating and, and there were certain people where within hours I could be on top of the world and then completely plummet to feeling like crap. Right. You know, and it would be like, I would hear from them and they would say, I can't wait to see you. I had so much fun with you last night. And I would write back and then they wouldn't say anything. And by the end of the day, I'd be like, oh, I guess they didn't like me. And my stomach would hurt and I'd feel really upset. And then they would text me and I'd be like, oh my gosh, they like me again. That's probably not the best way to feel in a chronic way. Maybe like one day in the whole relationship. So paying attention to how you feel and paying attention to how you treat yourself when you're dating somebody. So if you start treating yourself badly, um, it means that something is imbalanced. So for example, because of the relationship, let's say that you, you say to yourself, I'm going to start really being on top of going to bed on time. Yeah. 
And the person always booty calls you at 2 a.m. And so you're up all night long, not taking care of yourself, not sticking to your own limits. That's a signal too. You know, you should be able to date someone and still take care of yourself. So yes, look at the other person, but also look at how you behave with them. And if you're behaving in a way where you're always upset, you're not taking good care of yourself, take those to be warning signs. Well, it goes back to what you were saying in respect, it's like, yeah, I think it's also comes up another interesting point that I wanted to dive into with you is boundaries and respecting each other's boundaries. So firstly, how can we set up more efficient or, or good boundaries in our life so that that person understands it? Cause the communication factor with you know, talking about boundaries isn't exactly easy for some people. So how do we make that conversation a little bit easier? Yeah. So boundaries are tough, (laughs) especially at the start of a relationship. When you're so into somebody, you're like, I don't care. I'll see you at any time of day. I will lose my job for you. It doesn't matter. Yep. Six month honeymoon period. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, um, One of the first things that I often recommend people think about is what are your boundaries with yourself like? So if you tell yourself, um, yeah, I'll go back to the, I'm going to go to bed on time thing. If you tell yourself, I haven't been sleeping enough over the next few weeks, I really want to make sure that I'm going to bed by 10 and that I'm having a healthy bedtime routine. Are you able to maintain that boundary with yourself? You know, sometimes we blame other people. We're like, oh, I didn't go to sleep because Tom messaged me at 11 PM and kept me up or my friends didn't finish our outing on time. And that's why I didn't do it. But you actually have to be responsible to say to yourself, I'm going to get off the phone right now. I'm going to stop working right now. I'm going to tell Tom, sorry, but I'm about to go to bed. So we'll have to meet up another time. Like those are all the types of things that you need to start with in order to have good boundaries, period. You have to have them with yourself. Then you can have those external boundaries, which is expressing what's going on. So if you know, with myself, I put myself to bed at 10 PM. That's what I do. Then if somebody violates that and they ask you to come hang out at 11 PM, you're going to be much better at expressing to them. Hey, that sounds great. But actually during the week, I don't go out past 10. I would Mm -hmm. love to see you on the weekend. Or if you want to hang out before that, that would be cool too but you have to be able to have it with yourself first. Mm. What if you feel guilty? You feel mm. Guilt? Mm, this is an interesting point for me. <laughs> I, I need to learn. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I feel guilty with that too. I'm, I'm a therapist. So clearly I'm always thinking about other people's feelings. And um, I know you are too, before we got on this today, we were talking about the idea of calling out sick. And I know that that's something that bothers you, even though you had had to do that to take care of yourself. Um, So one thing that I would suggest is asking yourself, what am I doing here? That's bad. Guilt is related to thinking you're doing something bad. And sometimes we're accurate. And sometimes we feel that for absolutely no reason. So if you come back with an answer of like, whoa, this really is bad, you know, I'm being mean to that person, or I told this drunk person I would pick them up in 20 minutes. And now I'm saying that I'm setting a boundary and not coming and they're going to be in danger. Like, oh, maybe there is something guilty to feel about that. Cause I told them I was going to be the designated driver. Um, 
But most of the time we feel guilt with boundaries because other people have guilted us, not because we've actually done anything bad. And so if you can explore with yourself, like, where did I learn that this is bad? My guess is, is that you would come up with a story. You would say, well, when I was young and I said something like that, I would get in trouble. I would be told I was too difficult. Or in my last relationship, anytime I tried to set a boundary, they broke up with me and I wouldn't hear from them for two weeks. So digging in a little bit, number one, identifying if what you're doing is actually quote bad. Number two, digging in, where does this come from? And then number three, reminding yourself that the other person can speak for themselves. Mm -hmm. I think sometimes we become very self-focused with boundaries where we're like, I have to figure it out for the other person. They're not going to be able to tell me they're upset or they're not going to know what to do with this. They won't be able to figure out the problem. And so we feel guilty on their behalf. And it's important to remember that you might say something. You might say, I can't hang out past 10. And they might respond, well, that really upsets me because I'm a nurse and I don't get out of work until 11. How am I going to see you? But that's their right to be able to have an emotional experience. So just reminding yourself of that sometimes be really important. Mm. This is uh, helpful for me because <laughs> I don't. I want to be mindful of respecting someone else, but I, I need to be respecting myself too. So I don't want to feel guilty, even though like I've said no to somebody, and I don't want to be guilt tripped into thinking that I should feel guilty either. So I've got to be. It's tough. <laughs> it's so tough. But so, what you just pointed out is those three R's I talked about earlier respect, responsiveness, reliability. There are things you need to be feeling from another person, but you also need to be able to do those for yourself in a relationship. So if you're in a relationship and you're not respecting yourself, bad sign. If you can't respond to your needs, not a good sign. If you start getting super unreliable with yourself, you know, you're not finishing projects, you're not um, working out like you used to, whatever you used to do, that's not a good sign either. So any of those three R's, if they start slipping in a relationship, then that means there's some work to do to make that relationship feel a little bit better. How do those three R's help with one being more vulnerable within a relationship? Do they? Yeah. So do you mean how do they help with one person learning to be more vulnerable or if Yeah, I think that if you can think about them and if you're a person who is not a vulnerable person, mm-hmm. you might think to yourself, well, then how can I be responsive yeah. to somebody else? You know, if I'm not vulnerable and if I'm not vulnerable, how am I going to get an opportunity to see if somebody else can be responsive to me? Mm-hmm. When we're not vulnerable, we cut out opportunities for learning about the other person. So we might say, I am not going to share this because I don't like asking for help or because I'm worried they'll judge me. But if we don't share or if we don't talk about ourselves or ask for help, then what happens is we don't get good information. We don't get information about whether or not the other person can care about us and respond to us and all of that. So learning to be more vulnerable is really important. It gives you information. Being vulnerable then also requires you to be, to be, you know, responsive towards someone else's vulnerabilities. Um, And that's 
that's hard. That's a vulnerable position to say, I hear you're really upset that I didn't call you. And I, I'm really apologetic and I want to hear more about how it impacted you and what would you like instead? You have to be vulnerable to be able to say those types of things. Mm. Are relationships, is this, is this just me overcomplicating things or are relationships really, really difficult or are they simple and we're just making it difficult for ourselves? They're, they're both. (laughs) (laughs) They're, they're simple in that they tend to follow the same rules across the board in terms of what people actually want deep down inside. They're complicated in that the way that we request those things, the -hmm. way that we show up, we, we, you know, more than one person is in a relationship. So you're both coming into that relationship with a whole bunch of weird things alongside you all these things that you've learned, all the ways that you've been wounded, all the preconceptions you have and fears you have and all of that. And so even though it boils down to all of us mostly wanting the same things, we all have different defenses. And that makes relationships complicated because I have to be able to then get past myself enough to be able to see your defenses. And you have to be able to get past yourself enough to see mine and to be able to respond to each other. And that's hard. Mm. As a therapist, do you ever get sick and tired of talking about all this? No, I love it. Why? I think that it's fascinating. It never gets boring because every single human being is so different. I've worked with hundreds of couples, um, like thousands and thousands and thousands of hours have been spent with just to get your license. You have to see 3000 hours worth of couples. So I don't, in the last decade since having that, I don't even know how many hours I've worked with people, but I've never met people that are all the same Mm -hmm. and they always have interesting stories and there's always something to empathize with. There's always something to learn. There's always a new, unique combination of human coming together. And I think that, you know, people and humans are what make my world go around. So there's no other thing I would rather do. What got you interested in being a therapist in the first place? It's not a very romantic story. (laughs) That's okay. (laughs) So... Um, like the, the basic story is that I went to school for a million things. I went to school for like international relations. I didn't know what I would do with that. I went to school for organizational development, which is how businesses run. Um, I went to school to be a teacher. I was a terrible teacher. And when I graduated with my degree in organizational development, I was like, what am I going to do with this? I've never worked. I've never built a business. Like Mm. who's going to ask me to consult on their business for them. So I was driving down the highway, like utterly lost in life, probably literally lost too. Um, and there was a billboard that said, you should join this couples therapy program. And I thought, yeah, I should. That sounds really interesting. (laughs) And I went home and I applied and I got in I didn't apply anywhere else. Um, and it's been history since there, but obviously I've done some more digging. Like why was that attractive to me? Why have I done so well in this field? Because it's been something I just love, like immediately knew what I was going to do with it. And I think it has to do with, I grew up with a lot of, um, conflictual relationships, you know, severed relationships, people cutting each other off, being mean to each other, all sorts of things. and 
So I think my whole life I've been in love with figuring out how do we make sure people stop hurting each other so much? Um, and I just never knew what to do with that until I saw that billboard. And I was like, yeah, that exists. I should do it. Wow. That even though it's not like glamorous or anything like that, it's still a, a meaningful story for me. Because yeah. sometimes it's, it doesn't have to be like, oh, this happened, this happened, that led me here and here. It can just be so simple as like a, a billboard. And yeah, like a literal street sign telling me where to go. <laughs> quite literally. like. <laughs> and how long have you been doing it for now? Um, so I have been doing it since 2009. Yeah. So I can't do math really well. <laughs> so over a decade, 12, 11, 12 years, something wow. like that. Yeah. And you are, if people go to your Instagram or go to your website, they can clearly see that you're good at it. You know what you're doing. You've helped so many people all over the place heal their traumas, their relationships. You've uncovered many reasons why relationships don't work in the first place. I think if we were to go into sort of like the more modern age now with relationships and why they don't work in the first place. It kind of feels like we've got more things being thrown against us than mm -hmm. ever before. Um, mm -hmm. But before I ask you more about that, I wanted to ask another curious question. What inspires you every single day to keep on going? Like, because it would be pretty difficult to hear all these stories, no doubt. What keeps you going? I see change. And I think that if I was just hearing difficult stories and I never saw people improving, I never saw people find value in it or connect better or, or make decisions to break up that were appropriate. Um, that would be really hard. But I think when you see really hard things or you hear really hard things, but you can be a part of relieving some of that pain and suffering, yeah. it's just so incredibly motivating, right? Like mm -hmm. I think it's how doctors keep going into work. They see terrible things and they see people get better. And so it's like, I can see this terrible thing, but I have power to help here. And so that in itself, I mean, talk about fulfillment. That's just such a fulfilling part of my life. Mm. What questions should we be asking ourselves on a daily basis in order to have healthier relationships? Are there any questions we should be asking ourselves? Oh, that's so sweet. Yes. Let me, let me think of the best. I'll think of a few. They might not even be the best, but <laughs> okay. one, one thing that I think you should ask yourself is, you know, am I turning towards and investing intentionally in my important relationships? So at the end of each day, it could be pretty powerful to ask yourself. And this goes back to like leaving people on red. Um <laughs> How have I intentionally engaged with my relationships today? When people tried to connect with me, did I try to connect back to my important people? Um, when, you know, my partner or my kids or my friends were trying to get my attention, we call it bids for attention. Was I able to most of the time? And I am not about perfect. I am like, so not one of those self-help therapist people that's like, 
this is exactly how you should speak all the time or anything. Like I get that there's reality. Um, but most of the time was I trying to be intentional? Is there enough time in my life for my relationships? You know, I think that's another really important question you brought up modern age. Yeah. Our relationships are under so much strain and they don't have enough time to repair from all of that strain because we don't have time. So at the end of the day, if you say, wow, I don't think I've seen my partner or my kids all day, it's 10 PM. Um, what does that mean about your life? What has to change about it? What has to, has to happen so that you have room because your relationships correlate more with your physical and mental health than anything else that's ever been studied. You know, it's been studied again and again and again. And if you have happy, safe, meaningful relationships, you will be a healthier person. Mm. If you don't, it really hurts your health. So yeah, I think the daily question should be, have I invested in my relationships and have I had enough time for them? And if not, then what, Mm. what do I do? I think in today's modern age, we have become definitely connected to the internet and to different people were definitely wired, but that sense of meaning and fulfillment, I believe can only effectively come when we are in each other's space, when we are together with each other. And I feel like throughout the whole pandemic, there's been a lot of people that haven't been able to see their loved ones. They've been struggling. There's been a lot of domestic violence, abuse, you name it, that's gone through the roof. People the relationships have increasingly been struggling. There's so much strain being put on them. And I've felt the same thing in my own life. And I'm thinking, how can I make this better for myself? What does really a, a healthy relationship look like if, if I can't see them in person? What can we do in that respect? I guess that's my question to you. What can we do if we aren't able to see that person and still be able to have a healthy relationship. Is that really possible? Yeah, it's an interesting question. And I think the longer time goes on where we're having these long periods of time where we we might not see people. One of my friends actually lives in Australia and Mm. she just saw her family for the first time in like seven months and because of different lockdowns and all sorts of stuff. So it's, it's hard. And I think at first it was easier, you know, people could play into it a little bit. They could say, this is novel. This is fun. We can play a game online together. We can do a zoom call. We can FaceTime. It's starting to lose the novel feeling. And one of the most important parts of building relationships with people is having opportunity for things to be new and novel. That's why we like to go out to dinner together. That's why we like to go to concerts and parties and because it brings fun and excitement and learning new things. And if all you're able to do to connect is text and look at each other through a screen, that becomes hard. Those moments of connection become fewer and far, far between. And, you know, last week I was um, in Houston for work and I finally was working with people in real life. You know, all my colleagues were there and we were actually sitting in an office together and someone saw me today and said, you look better than you've looked in a really long time. And I was like, I don't know why. It's not like I've gotten more sleep. I haven't changed my makeup. I didn't change my ring light. It's the same light. (laughs) What is it? And I honestly think it's that I was with 
lots of people in a lot of new ways that felt good and felt connective. But what do we do with the reality if we can't? And it means that we have to work overtime a little bit, which is hard because we're stressed already. Um, and what that might mean then is that you do have to maybe limit who you're connecting with. Yeah. You know, maybe when you saw people face to face, you had 30 friends and maybe now because it takes more effort to really be engaged, maybe now you only have five and those are your people. And those are the ones that you try to work really hard on building a relationship with. And at the same time, I encourage people to look at the reality of their losses. I don't want to sugarcoat this. You can, you can try to build those relationships and maybe some of them will feel really good. And at the same time, there might not be a fix. You might really be grieving that you're not seeing your family members in the same way, or that you're not seeing your friends in the same way. And that's, that's really hard. Yeah. I always remember the Viktor Frankl quote, I believe it is men can live without sex. They can live without staff, but the one thing they can't live without is meaning finding that connection with, with someone and being able to yeah. be in their be in their space. It's interesting, even in like a death camp, he was still able to find a sense of meaning with people around him. So I think if he can do it, we can too somehow, even though it kind of feels like we're being stopped in, in many, many respects. I mean, here in Sydney, Australia, and even in Melbourne, it was crazy the last couple of months. You weren't able to go anywhere. Um, yeah. And, you know, a lot of people felt the strain, but you weren't able to do anything about it really. Like, it's just kind of like you have to take care of your own mental health somehow, some way, and still try and keep those relationships flourishing throughout that. So it was, it was an incredible challenge. Yeah. Um, so yeah, like, like I was saying, there's a lot of things that's pitted against us, but aside from the pandemic and, and COVID and, and all that sort of stuff, what are some other things that we're facing today in the modern age that kind of stops relationships from being healthy and working? Yeah. So pandemic, huge one. <laughs> um, the second is definitely technology. And while technology does so much for us in terms of maintaining, it's a double edged sword because we need it. It's how you and I are connecting right now. And if we aren't able to tune in to the other person because we're distracted by technology, then it causes huge problems in relationships. And of course, we can think of the big ways, like it's increased the, the capacity to have an affair or to gamble money that you shouldn't be gambling. Yeah. Um, but it also has these small moments created where I'm telling you a story and you're looking at your phone mm -hmm. and the story was important to me and you didn't hear a word I said, or we're having together time, but we're watching TV and neither of us are even paying attention to the show because we're distracted with 80 other times. So we have no united focus. So, um, yeah, technology is another huge piece. The other thing that's challenging in modern times with relationships is that most of us were raised either through caregivers that behaved using an old template or at least seeing it in the media, but we're not actually living that out right now. And what I mean is that we used to have a lot of what's called complementary relationships, which means one partner did X, Y, and Z, and the other partner did A, B, and C, and that complemented each other. And so people went into relationships and they knew their roles. And whether that was fair or good or whatever, 
up for debate and clearly isn't something that I would personally want to live out because I love working and, and, you know, doing all the things I do. But what happened is that we grew up seeing people doing that. And then we got into relationships that are actually symmetrical, which means that both people are working, both people are taking on the tasks of the home, both people are having goals and dreams and ambitions that they want supported, but they've only been trained to do one half of the role. And because of that, they take on things without talking about it. And so the person who is, you know, the woman in the relationship is more likely, even if she's also working to say, but I also give the kids the bath and I also vacuum. And I also remember that the Christmas play is this Friday. And I also know that our bills are due next week. So we have to do X, Y, and Z. Whereas the other partner who tends to be the male partner, but we see this in same-sex relationships as well, wasn't raised to identify with those tasks or roles and tends to not even notice them. And so you have two people who are working, but only one who understands the roles of the home. And that has become an incredible burden on relationships because Mm -hmm. that one person gets burnt out and resentful and it causes a ton of conflict. Do you find that you mentioned same-sex couples here. This is just my curiosity coming forth. Do you find that relationships have become, let me start over the question again. My brain is thinking about it. <laughs> I want to yeah, ask it the like right that. way. Uh, <laughs> do you find that, I guess, same-sex couples and um I'd say another hetero couples hetero. That's the word I was looking for. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, do you find that they still struggle with the same things in relationship? And why is that the case? Yeah. So across the board, the same general things come up in therapy. And I mean, it's the case because in relationships, we tend to all struggle with similar things. We struggle to communicate. We struggle to express our needs. We tend to uh, match with our opposite. So there's a lot of couples, whether same sex or hetero, that one person is more effusive and they like talking about their emotions. And the other person is um, maybe a little bit more closed off and doesn't necessarily want to talk about emotions in terms of like that mental load thing I was just talking about. What we find is that because that was probably the template base that everybody saw growing up again, whether it was in media or through their parents, one person working, one person taking care of the home, that even same-sex couples will both take on those roles where someone tends to be more in tune with what needs to happen with the kids, what needs to happen with the housework. And the other person feels much more comfortable to let that go. What I will say is that research has shown that same-sex couples tend to navigate conversations about that better. So there is less defensiveness and they tend to come to compromises that feel fair more quickly. And so when same-sex couples were interviewed around this topic, many of them said, oh yeah, it was a pain in the butt. Like I always knew what to do with the kids. 
they never even thought about what should happen with the kids. But when I brought it up, they heard me out and we came up with a compromise. Whereas in studies that have been done on hetero couples around this topic, um, there's a ton of defensiveness. So if the partner brings it up and says, honey, I am exhausted, like Mm -hmm. I'm working all day. I come home, I clean the dishes, I vacuum. I haven't been able to call the cable company. My head is going to explode what we tend to see is actually a lot of defensiveness from the other partner saying, how do you expect me to know these things? That's not my job anyway. Why do you care so much? Why don't you just stop worrying about it? We don't need to vacuum that often. And it takes longer to get to a place where there's fairness. And I mean, I think that that makes sense in that there's a stronger, um, a stronger connection to the modeling that they saw. So one of them is saying, well, you know, my dad didn't do this, so whatever. Whereas in same-sex relationships, they already kind of know that they're forging their own path in many ways. So they're open to talking about how things aren't working. Um, But it's really, it's really interesting how that plays out. I find the whole dynamic interesting, actually, like, Mm -hmm. and because I didn't know, about both of those areas actually. So it was, it was interesting for me and, and, and looking at why for me, I'm a, I want to be in a heterosexual relationship eventually one day. I'm looking at it by why do those dynamics clash? Maybe. Yeah. It's interesting for me. <laughs> I'm just thinking out loud at the moment. Um, yeah. but yeah, anyway, I, I, I do want to be respectful of your time, Liz. I, I I'm loving this conversation. I can ask you so many questions, but <laughs> a couple more questions for you, if you don't mind. Yeah. I do want to go back to the vulnerability question and, and ask you and kind of spin it. Uh, what has been the most vulnerable moment for you in your life? Mm, probably becoming a mom. It, it's such a vulnerable experience to become a mom, you know, or a parent in general, I'm sure. But there's so much vulnerability that just goes from the moment that you find out that you are pregnant and you have no control over your body at that point. Like there, you could eat as healthy as you want and all of that, but your body's going to do what your body's going to do. And the medical system's going to do what the medical system's going to do. And you have to trust. You have to be able to trust doctors. You have to trust your body. You have to trust your partner. You have to ask for help, you know, even with small things like, can you lift that for me? I can't lift it myself anymore. Or I guess I have to call out of work because I've been vomiting all day. And then you go into a room with a ton of doctors. I had a C-section and you have to trust them to, you know, cut you open and keep you alive and keep your baby alive, which is huge. Um, and then you have to be vulnerable enough to constantly admit you have no idea what the hell you're doing. And so, yeah, I would say that that's the most vulnerable moment or series of moments in my life. What do you love the most about your story and yourself? Hmm. About all of my story or my vulnerable moments story? <laughs> <laughs> all of your story, like as a whole. I think that I love that I you know, I tend to have just a really positive outlook in life and I'm definitely not a toxic positivity person. I'm not somebody that's like always think on the bright side, but one of the things I love about myself the most is that when I have a problem, I think that it's a really interesting thing to solve. And so 
I'll be upset about it for a little bit, but then I get into creative mode and I'm like, I'm going to figure this out. Like I'll, I'll find a new path. I will talk to somebody and I will stay up until 6am figuring it out. And that for me has been what's gotten me throughout my entire life. Like anytime I've faced some sort of challenge, I have been able to say, I'm going to solve it. It's okay. And so, yeah, I think I like that. I think I like that. I trust myself. Mm, I like that. All great answers, by the way. Thank you. (laughs) I wanted to ask you about your new book. I want this to work, which is the title. Why did you decide to write this particular book? Was it hard for you to write or was it a sort of an easier experience for you? Yeah. So I wanted to write it before the pandemic. (laughs) This was something that started in 2019. Um, And I wanted to write it because when I was meeting with couples, there were a couple issues in terms of books. The first was that there was no book that had all the info in it. There was a whole bunch of different books. So I would want my couples to learn about attachment styles and I would have to recommend attached. I would want them to learn about communication and I would have to recommend Gottman. And the likelihood that people are going to read that many books while they're in couples therapy is is pretty low. But the other problem was that when I recommended books, they weren't inclusive. And what I mean by that is that they would be couples who had, you know, couples who were definitely hetero, Mm. Barbara and John, but also couples that had very Anglo names. And it just seemed when you were reading the book, you know, when I read it, I didn't even notice it because my name's Elizabeth Earnshaw and I'm in a hetero relationship. So I identified with all these couples in this book, but I remember I had a couple that I loved working with so much. I loved them dearly. And they came in after I recommended a book and they said, this is really interesting, but there's not one gay couple in this book. Um, Cause you know, books give lots of examples throughout. And I said, Oh my God, you're right. Like I've never actually noticed that to be honest. And that's terrible. And they said, yes. Yeah, so does it apply to us? And that was heartbreaking because the information in that book in particular had been researched on same sex and hetero couples. And the research showed that the information fit for both. Um, but they just weren't weaved into the book. And so I really wanted to create something that I could give to people and, and where they would feel seen in the book. What do you hope the most for people to get out of reading your book? I hope that they learn to feel empowered, that they, that relationships have some sense built into them, that they aren't just these chaotic things that they feel like. And that once you understand yourself, once you understand some of the skills that you need to practice, that you can start to have, you know, some more empowerment within the relationships that you can start to build in more direction and that they can feel more safe and secure. Mm. where can people get a copy of the book or where do you want people to get a copy of the book more or less? And where can they connect with you and learn more about you, Liz? So you can buy it anywhere books are sold, Amazon, bookshop.org, any of the bookstores um, where you shop. In Australia, you can get it on Audible, Kindle, Hardback, all the things are there. Um, and if you want to connect with me, you can connect with me at Liz Listens on Instagram, or you can go to my website, elizabethearnshaw.com. Is the book coming out in Australia the same day as the US? Yeah, November 30th. 
Oh, that's awesome. Well, I'll be yeah. in the bookshop. <laughs> Amazing. Ho- hopefully I get to see it in, in my local bookshop and then I'll take a photo yeah. of it and then if it's let not you know. there, tell them, be like, I want you to order this book. Cause I think I will. I do that. The actually. local bookshops only like order things if, yep. if you tell them you want it. <laughs> or if it's semi-famous, that sort of yeah. thing. It's kind of yeah. like, this is going to sell in my shop. But what I exactly. love doing is I have a lot of friends that I don't get to see their book in the bookshop until I go up to the counter and beg them. <laughs> I'm yes. like, this needs to be in here. Why isn't it not? <laughs> Do that for why. me. <laughs> yes, I, I will. hundred percent. You got my word on that. Um, Amazing. Liz, you're awesome. I've really enjoyed this conversation. My final question for you is a question I love asking all my guests at the very end. It's a hypothetical one, but I want you to imagine with me for a moment that you've been able to reach the age of 100. All your friends and your family have decided to put together a film for you of everything you've ever said and everything you've ever done. Don't ask me how in the world they got it all. We'll call it magic for sake of argument. They've been able to get it and show it to you on your 100th birthday. What do you want that film to say and to show about your life? That I had a lot of fun and that I was very kind. And those are the end and that I made a ton of mistakes. Like I would be totally open to watching all of my mistakes because I think that means I took risk. Mm. Great way to end this conversation. Liz, thank you so much for your time today, your wisdom and your advice that you poured out to everyone that was listening and watching today. Thank you so much for being a guest and joining me today on the Storybox podcast. Thank you. It was so nice to talk to you. I really don't like this part because it means that sadly we have come to an end of yet another story. I just want to say thank you to all of you for tuning in and listening to our guest today. It is my prayer that you would have felt inspired, motivated, challenged in some way, and that you would have learned something new as well. If you would like to hear more amazing stories like this one, you can do so now by searching up the story box on all podcast platforms. It is that easy. And if you did get something from today's guest, please do share it around with your friend or family member who you feel could benefit from hearing today's story. And before you go, I greatly appreciate it if you could spend 30 seconds leaving a rating review over on Apple Podcasts. It goes a long way to reaching more people and building this community of the Storybox. Let's start changing lives through powerful stories like this one you heard today. Your support is always greatly appreciated. Until next time, when we dive back into the story box, I'm Jay Phantom, and don't forget, your story is worth more than you know. I'll catch you then. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.